Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 98, A Dance with Dragons, The Watcher, Ariel Hoda. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. (sighs) Ariel Hoda's other chapter. I can't believe we have to leave him after this until the winds of winter, but we do. We do. You don't get an Ario Winds of Winter chapter. And honestly, I, not that I like had low expectations or anything. I just am like, wow, this has been, I, I think, really fun to analyze the Ario chapters. I've never done like a deep dive on Aria Hota. I think there's like a lot of under-discussed stuff in there. Yeah, it's great in general to go to Dorne. I think we've seen some really good positives. I think we've also seen a lot of negatives in some of the storytelling there as we have discussed maybe not in full but we've definitely discussed it and I'm gonna be really kind of sad to leave Dorne for the next little bit because I kind of like living in Dorne for the moment. I like seeing some of these politics play out as we're about to talk about in the beginning of the chapter we're going to see a political event that maybe the Dornish really aren't that different besides their wanton women and their spicy peppers, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and you know, back then, right, we always had that in the back of our minds, like, yes, we're leaving Dorn right now, right, for a bit, once we were done with, like, the Arian chapters, but we always had that, like, thing in the back of our minds of, like, yeah, we'll be back, but now, I mean, eventually, I guess. Yeah, I guess for now, the closest we'll get to Dorne will be when we eventually hit, like, Cersei chapters, where you get some of the inklings of the Dornish near the end, and, um... I guess there's the Daenerys chapters, where it intersects with some of the Dornish politics, and yeah, like you said, the Tyrion chapters, but it's not in Dorne. No, we're not gonna come back to Dorne for a little bit, and that's okay, we'll, we'll adventure elsewhere. I'm actually, I'm pretty excited about where we're venturing next. Eliana, do you think we should tell them because next week we will not have a public episode that is a point of view episode we'll talk about what you are going to get for next week's public episode in just a second but come september we start a new a song of ice and fire pov yeah we're gonna take a quick break um i kind of forgot why we're taking a quick break that's a joke you'll see why that works in a second i'm ruining the joke <laughs> anyways oh my god yeah, so we're going to take a brief, the briefest of summer breaks next week and share with all of you a Patreon episode. In September, we're going to go from Dorne over to the Iron Islands. And then maybe, maybe head a little north? You know, I mean, the maybe. biggest reason why we chose this character next, I would say, is that it is a character who is also married to their axe so to speak, yes. right? They are married to their ex and their suckling babe. It is uh, what I personally, as a tall, gawky, awkward, pizza-faced, big-nosed woman can tell you, feel such such kin with. We're starting Asha Greyjoy next month, everyone. Yeah. Isn't that Yay, exciting? The crowd goes wild! No? That was just me? Okay. <sighs> as our friend and patron wolfman zach weed detective uh who if you listen to not a cast asoiaf check them out next week he will be on with them in the next couple weeks uh but our friend wolfman zach said these are going to be some horny chapters 
<laughs> in the announcement that uh, folks got ahead of time over on the Patreon. But yes, they were like, these are going to be so horny. I was like, wow, damn, called out he already. He knows us. <laughs> uh, Eliana will be covering the Justin Massey portion of these episodes, and I will be covering her husband, Carl, second husband, next to the axe. Yeah. And I feel really good about that. I, I, I am excited for Asha. I think there's... Uh, a couple of people have commented, you know, that we're going to maybe get to kind of the core, kind of that softer underside, because when you think of Asha, you see this loud, charismatic kind of, you know, like, oh, I'm the, I'm Valen's true heir. And uh, I think, think there's more there. I think there's more there that we're going to explore. Yeah. But so while you're waiting for that episode, next week, like I said, we will not be bringing you a point of view chapter. However... I think it's technically a point of view chapter, right? It's the point of view of many forgotten characters in The Winds of Winter. Our gracious patrons are donating an episode to the public. We want to show you what being a Girls Gone Canon patron in the Stranger and Above tier is all about. We pulled them, they answered, and we are going to share with you an episode that we recorded for patrons that is about characters in The Winds of Winter, broken apart by regional kind of areas that you might have forgotten about, right? Like, and their purpose that they're going to serve in The Winds of Winter. These are people such as Hallis Mullen, Illyria Dane, Forley Prester, Rollin Storm, Parmesan, I mean Parmen, Jean Crane, Parmesan and Crane. many other characters. <laughs> Parmesan Crane! Jean. And truly, Eliana forgot we even did this episode, so. I did, actually. I was like, what? And I think Chloe thought I was joking at first, and I was like, I forgot we did that. She's like, oh, interesting. You forgot? And I was like, I really did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was voted on across... Oh god, like four different episodes. Um, There were a few other options. We won't tell you them now. But, well, I guess we can. It was what? House Valerian, Mentorship in a Song of Ice and Fire. It's the only episode I remember. The Maiden Vault. There was, I think, one more. Uh, was it one of the Free Cities? No, no, but everybody did say, what? No Tyrosh? No, it's a Mia Dario? Tyrosh and more? One of the best episodes that is worth patroning Girls Gone Canon for alone. And these episodes are available monthly for our Stranger Tier, $5 and up patrons they get a special episode every other month it's a song of ice and fire every other other month we're doing his dark materials ask episodes and we have some of those coming up this month yes this month we are going to be doing another la belle sauvage episode and exciting news as we discuss la belle sauvage uh i got i finally was able to attain my copy of the secret commonwealth the sequel to La Belle Sauvage, which is a a book in the series or trilogy called The Book of Dust, which is a prequel series to His Dark Materials, the other series. Not a prequel. Damn it. That's true, you're right. The Secret Commonwealth is not a prequel. Right. La Belle Sauvage is a prequel. Secret Commonwealth is is a sequel. It's really confusing. It's a sandwich. I'm sorry. The sandwich series... (laughs) <laughs> the sandwich series of La Belle Sausage, the beautiful sausage, and the secret sauce. And anyways, these are all part of the Book of Dust, which sandwiches the His Dark Materials series, which we again also cover and are going to be wrapping up the second book of. 
Yes, we'll be finishing The Subtle Knife this month for our His Dark Materials podcasting. That will be a Friday release uh, at the end of the month. And we will actually be releasing these LaBelle Sauvage chapters to the public. We have a little bit of a backlog we'll work up. But come September, we might be releasing a few until the TV show starts back up. So if you are looking for another series to read, to be emotionally invested in, to cry about, if A Song of Ice and Fire just isn't doing it for you, anymore you know if you're like i am cried out uh, i offer you his dark materials because i did not cry in last month's episode no matter what eliana would like you to believe i did not because i've never cried on this podcast chloe's also apparently never lied on this podcast i guess either i have never done anything wrong in my entire life eliana i said that recently at work and i was like this isn't nearly as funny to anyone but me but yeah, so that's exciting. Uh, speaking of things that are sad, I finished The Poppy War. That one's heavy. Oh, I've heard that's heavy and I have not touched it yet. Yeah, reading that series together with some of the good folks of at Learned Hands on their uh, community for the Westerosi Bar Association, of which I am a member. <laughs> I have to get my membership up soon. I just kind of, uh, I've been absent from the old internet, you know? Yeah. I'm like the cranky old lady that just, like, sleeps 13 hours a day. Speaking of communities, though. (laughs) Speaking of communities, we are really excited because we will be granting access to our Discord for select patrons to beta test. Uh, And I think we're going to do that this weekend. If you're listening to this and you are a patron in the Chestnut and Above tier, you might already be connected by the time this is going. Or you might have seen a message about being connected, but... There is a uh, a special event happening this weekend that we would love for our patrons that will be beta testing the Discord to hang out with us for. It is a day where Eliana turns 21 years old. Yeah, you guys, um, you might not know this, but I'm turning 21. (laughs) What's your first drink going to be, Eliana? What was my first drink (laughs) at 21? I had this big fishbowl and like I had a whiskey sour maybe in one hand and I think someone bought me a fishbowl at the bar we were at. God, I didn't even get drunk. I was so mad. I didn't do anything actually on my 21st birthday because I think my grandfather died two days before. So it was like depressing. <laughs> Life sucks. So I, that was not never like that never ended up being a big deal for me <laughs> because of that. Well, we are going to try to give Eliana a fun birthday, maybe have some Discord activities this weekend, so look out for that message coming to you soon. We are hoping to grant access in September to our Thunder tier and above, to casual streams, chatting, and much more on Discord. We are so excited to craft a little Discord community, and I don't know, excited to do some streaming. I know Eliana and I both have those streaming card things now, so you want to come to our island on Animal Crossing? We're going to do it. We're going to Animal Cross. We are going to Final Fantasy VII Remake. Eliana's going to suck at Dark Souls, and I love that about her. Um, I'm okay. going to kill some Sims. You know, it's going to be wild. I have thoughts. First of all, first of all, <laughs> regarding <laughs> Dark Souls. So I'm doing okay on this new run through that I've started, and it's kind of hard, all right, adjusting to the different controls of the Switch, even... Even my boyfriend, who's played it a lot, when I was like, here, try it on the Switch, he's like, I can't fucking do anything with these controls. This is terrible. And he kept mashing the wrong things. And he actually, like, you know, 
used to be able to like do the the game quite quickly, right? Played it all the time. So, in my defense, <laughs> I digress. It's gonna be a blast. We would love for you to join us. So, like I said, come September, we are hoping that we will go big and grant access to everyone that is in the Thunder tier and above over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. But for now, we'll be beta testing for our uh, our friends in the Sweetfoot and Zorse tier. So come on down, check out the message you'll get very soon, and we'll go from there. Yeah. But until then, we have some emails and tweets of note. Yes, and we got this email from Important. a friend named Sedona. Now, they wrote us this, and about 20 minutes later, Eliana and myself were on the Nauticast live stream tuning in. This was this past Monday. And we saw a very similarly worded question to this. So I am going to give this good faith and say it was not double asked to them, especially because, listen, Eliana and I are going to have really good answers for this. I know we will. So Eliana, this is from our friend Sedona, and Sedona asked, which of the direwolves is sorry, direwolfers is fluffiest, and why is it canon? Well, this is a good question. It's an important question, and it's one that we should all be discussing constantly. And I don't know why. <sighs> I don't know why we haven't been talking about it as much. And I think this is a sad answer. I think it would be Lady because Lady's hair was constantly being brushed. Yes, and that actually... Look, I'm a cosmetologist. I'm licensed in a state in this country to do cosmetology. And uh, usually you know me. I would never brag about anything that the state would let me do, but I am. And I can tell you that when you brush your hair, you're kind of combing down the follicle. And your hair is literally... A pine cone. So imagine a pine cone. If you do things to your hair like heat damage it or color it, it's going to be an upside down pine cone with the ridges open, right? Like that's what your follicle is going to look like. But if you're brushing that and you're not adding damage to it, when you brush it, it smooths the follicle and you're going to have a floofy coat. So Lady is a great answer because Sansa took great care of her direwolf. I would also add that Grey Wind is mm. very regal or was very regal. Rest your goddamn soul. And I would imagine Grey Wind would also be floofy. Now, a lot of people want to say Ghost, but I imagine Ghost and Shaggy Dog, and probably Summer as well, would be very... They probably have matted fur because some of them are out in the wild, doing things, etc. Their environment, uh, living north of the wall, I can tell you that probably would not do wonders for your hair. You would have very dry doggo hair. So... Yes, I would say Lady and Grey Wind, probably the floofiest. Can you tell? give me your assessment on Nymeria's fluff? I just hope that Nymeria is somewhere getting her fluff braided by the other wolves in her pack. Fair. But I have a feeling that, like, her fur is probably coated with blood, so. That's true. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, Lady and Grey Wind had the most uh, reason to be floofiest. They had the most to show up for. And blood- The rest of them are like- yeah. We don't care, it's quarantine bitches. I've had enough experience with blood to know that it does not make things floofier. No, not at all. Anyway, 
So, I'm glad that we have agreed on which direwolf we think is the floofiest. Unfortunately, it sounds like they're both, like, the dead ones. But it sounds like it's a canon. Maybe floofiness is a death sentence. Hmm, for that the, might for be the a theory, Sedona. You might have just helped us get across that, that if your wolf is well taken care of, wow. you die. Or your wolf dies, sorry. Wow. Only death may pay Sansa for floof. will never die. Now that we've uncovered the answers, the canon answers to this very important question, we also have another canon thing to do, our lightning round. And we did it a little (laughs) different this time. Chloe, can you walk us through the method to your madness? Yes. So obviously we left off in the last chapter with Ariohota, and we have a lot to finish, right? We have a Feast for Crows still that finishes out after that chapter, And we also have a dance with dragons because this chapter is in a dance with dragons, not a feast for crows. So there's one in one. So what we're going to do is we are only going to hit some really relevant chapters on our way into the Watcher. And we're going to start that in a feast for crows. And then we're going to hit a dance with dragons up until this chapter. So first off in a feast for crows is the soiled knight. I'm sure you haven't forgotten it quite yet. It was very recent, but a white knight has a secret rendezvous with royalty, one with layers of guilt attached. Truly, it could be anyone, but you all know it's Aerys Oakheart. Yes, and then uh, the one with the secret rendezvous is the Queenmaker. Princess Arianne plans to crown Marcella at Hellholt, but Darkstar's sword and the arrival of Ariohota have something else to say about that. They sure do. The Princess in the Tower is the next chapter we'll cover. Arianne is imprisoned for weeks as penance for her plotting, and her father comes to her revealing a much bigger plan. Vengeance, justice, fire, and blood. And that, of course, leads us into Adawada, affectionately, A Dance with Dragons. Yes, we get the Merchant's Man in this book. Quentin Martell arrives in Volantis with his companions, Ready to do what it takes to get to Marine. <laughs> the Lost Lord. Lord John Connington makes his acting debut in A Dance with Dragons after losing Tyrion. He presents Ratgar Targaryen's son, Aegon, to the Golden Company, who has his own plans on how his takeover of Westeros should go, slightly influenced by Tyrion. Also, John Con has Grayscale. Wow. Then we have The Windblown. Quentin and his companions, Quentpanions? Why didn't I think of that before? Join the Windblown, led by the Tattered Prince, in hopes of joining up with Daenerys Targaryen. But the catch is that they must turn their cloak to do so. Ah, what's honor? That, of course, leads us to the Watcher in Adobada. The Dornish put on a show for Balin Swan, but Doran later clues the snakes and Ariane in to his plotting, finally. They don't mean to take the Lannisters sitting down. And so the chapter starts off with everyone has gathered around to see the present delivered to Dorne. It's in an ebony box clasped with fine metals. Nobles, snakes, all of who's who from court. They're all in attendance. What's in the box? All right, anyways. So <laughs> What's Swan in the box? <laughs> delivered the package. That movie fucked me up, and the court holds its heavily manicured breath as they are about to find out what is inside. Yeah, this is kind of 
the first real event we see with Team Martell, right? Like, this is a public social event. We see many feasts throughout the story. We get tons of layers of capons glazed in this and that and garlic stuffed and roasted in pies. But this right here shows that maybe Dorne really isn't that different from most of Westeros, right? Like, it's definitely world building on Dorne's spiciness. Ugh. But... Maybe they're not so different. They are plotting and scheming and having symbolic dinners where people are, you know, making allies and breaking allies. And it's very interesting. It kind of reminds me of a much more subtle version of the dinner scene in Dune in the first Dune book. Mm. If you haven't read Dune, there is a very politically charged scene that is pretty much, uh, if you read the book and you're bored and you can't get through it, when you hit that dinner scene, oh, you'll know, because that is just like an electric wire. There's so much political savvy happening, people plotting all within a meal, and that's what this feels like. This chapter is deep and full of that. Some of the examples of how that... Politics is playing out is like Doran is flanked by Ariane and Alaria and Ariane's at a place of high honor. Maester Calliot sets the box, though, at the foot of his chair, opening it for all to see. Sir Balin Swan was tout as a drawn bow. The captain of guards observed. This new white knight was not so tall nor comely as the old one, but he was bigger across the chest, burlier, his arms thick with muscle. His snowy cloak clasped at throat by two swans and a silver brooch. One was ivory, the other onyx, and it seemed to Ariel Hota as if the two of them were fighting. The man who wore them looked a fighter, too. This one will not die so easy as the other. He will not charge into my axe the way Sir Ares did. He will stand behind his shield and make me come at him. If it came to that, Hota would be ready. His long axe was sharp enough to shave with. Ooh. I love that there's a line where all the rest had eyes only for the chest while we're getting so many of these observations from Ario, including right, him sizing up Bale and Swan. Part of it is, I think, you know, it, it, of course, yes, as we discussed last episode, George's workaround uh, for giving us a perspective of Doran, but not giving too much that's going on in the head of like Doran. But it's also showing us where Ario's attention lays, and it's not preoccupied with vengeance and being like, is it the skull in the box, like in the way that others are. Additionally, you know, that that aspect of Ario sizing up those around him, like Bale and Swan, I think it, it shows us again, like, and is reinforcing something we discussed before, and, and that Matt and AK once again talked about on that stream, where Ario's always talking kind of figuring out how good of a fighter is everyone around us and using that as a sort of metric for how good they are uh, and conveying that to the reader. But also I think it's interesting that Balin is, you know, he's from the Marcher Lords who tend to be at odds with the Dornish. And I think though, based on Balin's background, we may find out, find out that he might be actually a little more similar to Aryo than either of them would expect. <laughs> More than That's Ari's. a great point, which is interesting because he kind of seems to relate to him, right? And feels kind of sorry for this sucker who holds his own a lot better than, as we've talked about, Aries Oakhart, uh, who is young, young dumb jock, right? Maybe. Uh, in this kind of sense. Yeah. Right, maybe, as we discussed. There's a lot that comes right back to Feast in this chapter. Uh, the skull is resting and it is grinning on a bed of black velvet. Doran commands that it be set on the pedestal, and he has tears in his eyes. Yeah. Maester Kaleot is not quite tall enough to reach the pedestal, by the way, so Ariel tries to help him, but Obara reaches there first and does it. And 
there's a little parallel here, right? That back in Jamie 1, I know it wasn't too long ago when we visited that knight who has a duty, but only the dead are happy, right? We have this line in Jamie 1, A Feast for Crows. The vapors rising from the corpse were making Pycelle's eyes water. The flesh, as the flesh dries, the muscles grow taut and pull his lips upward. That is no smile, only a drying, that is all. A drying. Only the dead are happy. Tywin's dead. The mountain's dead. So why is no one's heart in this court full? Yeah. The tears in his eyes gets me. We talked about the relationship between Ario and Dora in last episode, and a little bit regarding Calliote, but it's nice we see that reinforcement again throughout this chapter, the loyalty that Calliote shows Doran, I think, and the care that he gives Doran. Like, Calliote has a lot of concern for Doran's well-being, as we can see, and I think that detail of his fingers shaking as he opens the box almost shows his own anxiety about it. It's not just, like, oh, I'm nervous because, like, what if there's a skull in here? Like, that's normal, right, for a maester? Like, that's literally part of the job description. But I kind of read it as, like, Calliote is just so close to this family. We don't know where he's from, right? Like, a lot of the maesters that he also just at the same time, like, longs for vengeance in the same way, or maybe some sort of payment for their own pain. It reminds me a bit of the maester that Catelyn had, right? That kind of familial yeah. bond, and how, of course, Lewin has been with Cat for so long now, too. Lewin. Yes, there's definitely some Lewin parallels with Kaleo, in my yeah. opinion, just a little bit. Like, he, they do the best, and I hope we do get to see him again. I'm not sure... And I know we'll probably get to this, but I'm not really sure the context of how we would see him, but... He's, like, not, I guess, super important. I just, like, appreciate Calliot's presence, you know? I like his egghead. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, eggheads are indeed important, actually, in the story. So Tyene innocently asks Sir Balin if the mountain's dying was long and hard. And he says, it was heard throughout the castle for days, his screaming... Nameria, of course, is like, oh, does that trouble you, sir? Uh, and she's wearing this very inappropriate outfit. I know this because one time I dressed up as Nymeria for a convention-esque thing for fun with some friends, and I decided this was the outfit that I was going to imitate. Let that one sink in. Uh, she's wearing fine, thin-spun, like, yellow and gold, and it's very transparent. Now, Balin's uncomfortable. He's looking everywhere but the titty. You know what I mean? And also downstairs, too. He's like, no, don't look, don't look. Just look at her eyes. Uh, But Ariel Hota is like, I'm happy because she usually wears blades concealed within her gowns and her dresses. So this dress reveals any secrets. And from this, he can see that she is garbed not to kill. Balin, her eyes are up here. Swan. I'm just imagining how would Ari's have like dealt with this anyway. Um, so since last week, after recording this episode, Matt, aka Joe Magician, and I have just been on our own, also going down some rabbit holes about Ario Hota rabbit holtas. You know, I gave it a go. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I don't want to fire you, but like I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I'm on thin ice. And, you know, one of the rabbit holes we went down had to do with another interpretation uh, that Matt made as we were talking that I thought was really interesting when it came to the blood oranges. I think 
There's a lot of things that what, what's so strong about the writing of the blood oranges in there as symbolism is is it carries a lot of weight. It does a lot of the heavy lifting for the themes running throughout this book and, and for characters all in there and just is able to convey all that at once. And some of it is exactly what you were saying about death and blood. Some of it is regarding uh, Feldman's essays, right, about timing and overrightness, which we'll see later on in the chapter as, you know, they're all like, the time is right. And Matt also pointed out that Hota's regret in not eating the oranges uh, could also point to being about this forbidden fruit and Hota's sexuality and denying himself that sexuality, especially because A Feast for Crows has a lot of those, again, uh, Edenic overtones. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't really see Ario Hota express any sort of sexual desire in his chapters, which, you know, I, I think that is interesting. Like, I don't know that he has any vows about celibacy that he has to keep right now, Right, an interesting comparison when you consider that the title of this chapter is The Watcher and putting it next to other chapters like John's, which are in this book, where they're very much the watcher on the walls, they're guards of the realm who some of them are forced into that position, much in the same way that not exactly in the same way, but you know, Ario was forced to join the Holy Guard, but and are thus they're like sworn to celibacy and we were discussing how Ario's enslavement in Norvos likely led to the repression of his sexuality and like I, I don't want to seem like I'm erasing the possibility that Ario Hota could be asexual it's more that I'm reluctant to to go with that being the case when there's all these other like oppressive and traumatic elements in his upbringing and intimacy, which I'll come back to later on in this episode towards the end. But I do think it's interesting that Ario Hota sees sexuality through that lens of weaponry, right? Like he's like, yeah, it's great that Nim is wearing this skimpy outfit because that means she's concealing less weapons. And also he recognizes later on what Ariane is trying to do with Balin Swan when it comes to using her sexuality, especially because he saw how uh, things ended up with Ari's Oakheart. Yeah, she weaponized her sexuality against Ares, and I think there is definitely something in this that Ario Hota has lived a life where his sexuality was weaponized against him. We don't necessarily know what he was trained by the bearded priests, right? It's very vague, all the things they taught him. They taught him to serve, obey, protect, but they did brand his skin, mm-hmm. right? And that is a move that is to take ownership over someone's skin. If you're putting a hot brand into someone's flesh, um, it is very much so, I don't know if I'd say sexual in a positive way, but it is taking their skin and marking it as your own. And so for him, it has never been his body to give, we talked about last episode, is he technically free of his slavery? But I would argue that the bearded priests trained him to go into this. Not only was he sold to them, but he was then sold again for their use, right? Like, he didn't just stumble into Malario's family's care. So he has never been able to harness that sexuality. As we've discussed, he's never been allowed to harness it, and it was harnessed against him. 
He had a hot metal brand pressed against him. I think that's something that really stands here. I think that also is a big reason why he is an observer. Uh, some argue that some say he's the camera that rides, as we've discussed. And this chapter, of course, is very meta because it's called The Watcher. We're seeing all of this through Ariel Hota's eyes. He is watching uh, everything going on, observing everything going on, and he's not actively participating. And I think that comes through very harshly because he has never really been allowed to. Doran has definitely given him some agency, but even the way that others treat him in these chapters, it's apparent that he is not an equal. Yeah, and I don't want to like take away from the possibility that Ario could have regained or, you know, any of his uh, agency. We mm-hmm. we just don't know, right? We haven't we seen don't. enough of him and his chapters to really make that call but you know what you're saying about the repression in the way that the bearded priests tried to redirect or suppress that sexuality in the branding there's also of course the way that it, it seems like some of it was directed then into into um fighting and and their order in that you know he thinks constantly that his axe is his wife right that's where it all gets directed into yeah and i'd say that as we've discussed before, dissociation is probably one of the most powerful things that saves people from heavy trauma, right? It is a safety net. It's not a good or healthy safety net. It creates much bigger problems later, but we see it in almost every single POV character in this story because everyone is going through stressful, dramatic soap opera, medieval bullshit every time you turn a corner. And it, I'd say that, you know, when Ario Hota was having a hot brand pressed against his skin and his flesh was melting and marring and becoming scarred within seconds and cauterizing on him, like, I'd say he probably did a fair bit of dissociating. And that kind of tends to make you think, you know, like, not of the flesh as how you or I might think of our flesh. Uh, all the time or consistently. Look at John, look at Jamie and how their duty and sex and Jamie has obviously treated sex very in a toxic manner with how he and Cersei interact and what he's been told he's supposed to act as a knight of the Kingsguard. Uh, John, not very healthy. Sex life, yes, they're both having sex, even though their order says no, but not in a healthy manner. And for Ario, it seems to be the opposite thing. He's not having sex, not because his order told him to, but because he's never been able to own his flesh. Absolutely. Nim? basically says regarding the mountain like good i'm glad that he suffered when she learns that (laughs) he spent his last days screaming and balin argues that a knight should die with a sword in his hand i love that it reminds me of Ares, of course dying recently uh sword in hand charging like a dumb idiot big dumb blonde golden retriever right or something but when we look at Ario, I I think this is foreshadowing for Balin's death for sure. Like, a knight should die with a sword in his hand. I am sure that Balin will be dead, either by the time we get to the chapter in the next book, where he dies, or maybe off the page. We don't know. We don't know. Um, But I also wonder if this is some foreshadowing for Ario Hota with his axe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Because he's not a knight, but he has taken knight vows, in a way. In a way. Balin says that poison is a foul and filthy way to kill, which Titan smiles at. Hota then watches her deft, graceful fingers closely as well, like, oh god, is this happening? And I think it's interesting that Aryo doesn't really care, like, how the mountain died, and I do want to rest on this idea that, like, the mountain quote-unquote deserves an honorable death, allegedly, according to Balin, as a knight versus the poison that he got, per 
you know, whatever Balin thinks are the rules of knighthood and stuff. And I, I, I agree with the Dornish, you know, why should the mountain get an honorable death when he was such a dishonorable person? Like, he gave such fucking gruesome deaths to the Martell's family members. And I think, honestly, in my, like, the composure of the Martells when Balin says this incredibly insensitive thing is very admirable. They just, like, reply passive-aggressively, which is more than I would have done in their <laughs> position. Yeah, not wrong. You're not wrong. Some of them, like, bit their tongue, you know, probably, and they're like, excuse me? It was very much a game at this dinner, as we're about to get into, as Doran kind of steps in and Ariane takes part when they're sitting there at the feast later later on. And even here, um, as we kind of bump into all this, I mean, we're about to have a big toast that is very highly political. Yes. Doran's frowning at this exchange, right? He's uh, reminding Balin that, well, I mean, the mountain was a brute who murdered Elia, my sister, and her children violently. (laughs) And he says that he only hopes that Elia may find some peace now and is glad that the Lannisters have proved the truth of their boast and paid this old blood debt. Interesting. Their blind seneschal? Ricasso, he lifts his glass to Tommen, proclaiming all hail King Tommen. Uh, and of course, blood red, strong wine is being handed out against amongst the nobles. Like, if that's not some uh, some heavy coded metaphors, right? It's blood red, drink the blood of our people. Doran is drinking his own wine, which is laced with milk of the poppy. I'd love that. Many people accept the wine and drink for the little king. Ariane is one of them, Elaria, Balin Swan, Lady Jordane, and the Lord of God's Grace, Lord Illyrion as well. Eriohota does not partake because he wishes to keep his senses sharp in, le- in case he has to. But the list of people who do not drink is kind of significant. I want to break them down, uh, but the nation is quite obviously decided, and most chief among these non-drinkers, of course, is the Sand Snakes. Most of those who did drink totally make sense for the most part, right? Lady Jordan drinks. I imagine that's due to courtesy. It is surprising, though, because her heir did go to King's Landing with Oberyn's crew, Miria. The rest of them totally make sense, right? Uh, they they will play big roles moving forward in Arianne's plot, the people that didn't drink, or they've already played roles. Damon Sand did not drink. As we learn later, he took Ariane's virginity, but he's also the heir to House Illyrian, so his father did drink, but he did not. He was arrested for demanding the release of the Sand Snakes, uh, and later on we'll find him as part of Ariane's party when she leaves Dorne. Tremond Gargalin, he's the Lord of Saltshore, and he accompanied Oberyn to King's Landing. Dagos Manwoody, the Lord of King's Grave, also accompanied Oberyn to King's Landing, and he brought his sons as well. The Ullers, Ilaria's family, they accompanied Oberyn to King's Landing, but they, of course, have a bloody history, and their history is only small, maybe next to House Weil. Uh, Harlan Tyrell's army in the very first Dornish War disappeared in the sands outside of Hellholt. The Hellholt, of course, was abandoned when they arrived, so they left, and then it seems the Ullers did them in. Rhaenys and Meraxes, as well, were lost in Hellholt and never recovered. House Wyle is one of the many houses that feast Balin Swan on the way into Dorne. They are a little, how you say, wild. Duh. Uh, the first Dornish war, they ambushed Lord Oris Baratheon's forces, and Lord Wyle committed some pretty, pretty crazy atrocities at Alice Oakheart and John Catherine's wedding. 
He castrated the groom, raped and trafficked the bride into slavery, and killed most of the guests. So, well, not great. Those are choices. Yeah. And last but not least of who did not drink were the Fowler twins. They were found abed with Nymeria, if you remember, when Oberyn's death was announced. Uh, They are Sand Snake and Oberyn aligned, is what I take from that. And they often feuded in history with the Ironwoods, which to me says they're likely to take the Aryan side of things, right? Because the Ironwoods are very much aligned with Quentin. So just a little breakdown on those guys. I thought that was interesting. Most of the people that did not drink were people that went to King's Landing with Oberyn. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, You know, they took that very personally and they're like, we know who you are, right? Carrying that all the way back here. Nymeria and Tyene also declined the wine, as you said, amongst the Sand Snakes, but Obara takes it and spills it on the ground. (laughs) Much, much more uh, explicit gesture than storms from the hall and Arian goes after her. There's a line here of Obara would never turn her rage on the little princess, Hotanyu. They are cousins, and she loves her well. Hmm. It's a sweet line when you think about it, but at the same time, I feel like there's something more in there. Um, we talk a lot about, of course, Erio being the Watcher in this chapter, and it reminds me a bit of Dantos from Sansa 4 and Clash, when Dantos says... I hear all sorts of things as a fool I never heard when I was a knight. They talk as though I'm not there. So yes, he is seeing some of these little observations, like Obara uh, leaving and Ariane going after her, and he thinks that she'd never turn her rage on the princess, but I worry that Ario takes that as canon for himself as well. Like, kind of wondering if, yeah, but is she going to turn her rage on you someday? He's still very much so an outsider to the Sand Snakes, as we've seen. They don't respect him, uh, as we saw with the little Obara in the Stony Hall area and the arches with him in the last chapter. He wasn't, I mean, when he came here, he came with Malario. He wasn't, he's not Dornish. He never will be. He'll never be one of them as much as Doran may try to. Uh, Hota might be relying on the Sand Snakes loving him like family, but... Look at how they treat Doran, who actually is blood. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mix. I don't know that Hota will think that about Obara, right? Every time he's looking at the Sand Snakes, he's like, all right, one of them's dangerous. I'm ready all the time. <laughs> one of the four are dangerous. Yes, someone might be up to something at any moment. Fingers crossed that it's Sorella. <laughs> so Couldn't be Obara. Yeah. I just also kind of wonder what the breakdown of the Dornish chapters are going to look like in in Winds and how it's all going to uh, be dispersed, right? Are we just going to lean heavily on Well, chapters? we will talk about that in a little bit because I have some ideas, especially regarding Tyene and, oh gosh, so many ideas. As we get to the end, we'll talk about it. Because technically, George said he's not going to add more POVs. Anyways. No, he's not. And I rely on that absolutely when I think about Winds all the time. But for now, the feast is continuing. It's going late uh, with some really delicious food. And as, as Chloe points out, we cannot in good taste leave it out of the episode. And why would we? As, again, food is good. Seven courses in honor of the seven gods and the seven Kingsguard. Um, Except there's like, what, like four left, five left of the Kingsguard at most? I'm not going to question someone giving me more food. Well, I guess I would if I thought they were trying to poison me. But regardless... There's soup made with egg and lemon, 
And I'm over here just screaming, give me the aviolemino! <sighs> I, I make it. a really mean aviolemino. Really? Oh, I will I make it, it for you sometime. And really good cabbage rolls with a great lemon Greek sauce. Anyways, uh, really good. I love the dessert, though, because it is sassy. It's sherbet to cool down the mouth, We didn't right? talk about the other food. Hang on. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you back. did that already. Go ahead. No, uh, I was just, I, we were just on the first course. Long stuffed green peppers with cheese and onions, lamprey pies, honey glazed capons, a whisker fish, fish, which is huge. I'm pretty sure that's just a catfish. Just a cute name for a catfish. Actually, catfish is also a cute name, regardless. Savory snake stew simmered with dragon peppers, blood oranges, mm. and a dash of venom for spice. I want that. I want that. A lot of these. I want all of these. But savory snake stew, and I believe they have like several different types of snake, it said, in the stew. Chunks of it cooked and then simmered down with some dragon peppers and blood oranges and venom for spice. Oh my god, I want that. Do you not want that? No, I want all of these. And it's served with sherbet to cool down yes. afterwards. And that sounds delicious. And then, after that, this part's even better. They get a sponge sugar skull. Every person gets their own little sugar skull. And when you break inside of it, there's sweet custard and bits of fruit of uh, plum and cherry are in it. And that sounds delectable. It does. I, I know that... Um... Bale and Swan is like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> what are you, why would you serve me a skull? And this is distasteful. And then I'm in the corner like, no, it's very tasteful. Thank you. It's hilarious. And Ariane's <laughs> like, oh, it's just the cook's joke. The cook's making a little joke. It's fine. They're just, just trying to flirt. Um, she actually shows up just in time for the stuffed peppers, which I also make a mean stuffed pepper. And Ario notes, she's his little princess, but she's a woman now because she's in scarlet silks and she's scheming and stuff, you know. But he does think she seems a little chaste, a little reserved, a little withheld since the queen maker. And of course, her time of solitude in Princess in the Tower... It does seem like there's something else beneath the surface, he thinks. Some sort of confidence, maybe, that her father put in her that he did not know of. Yeah, which actually is kind of, like, soft warm. But anyways, it reminds me of this impression that she's been, like, chastened, right? It reminds me of Circe at the end of this very book. And you think, like, oh, she's been really, really humbled by this entire experience and learned her lesson. And then Robert Strong appears and she's like... Learn her lesson, not me. And that's area. <laughs> Especially uh, in the context of, um, yes, of course, of course the mountain's dead. Kinda. I mean, he is. Probably worse fate. Yeah, I feel even the way, like, the way that Kevin in the epilogue says, you know, like, oh, like, she's finished now, that Cersei, she's a finished woman, you know, her day's done, her vagina's dusty, we're sending her back to Casterly Rock. You know what I mean? Like, that's the way the conversation goes. And it does feel like Cersei won't do any crime anymore. And that's how this feels to be like, Ariane's good now. She's not gonna act up. She's not gonna act out. She's fine. Things are good. She's really political and quiet and smart and studious now. And I'm like, oh, Ariane, you got some shit to do in the next book, don't you? <laughs> yes, she does. But at least now, you know, she's she's got a good, strong relationship with her father. Well, they're working on it. It's it's decent. They're healing, kind of. Except they're going to die. Anyways. <laughs> Nature's healing. Um, <laughs> Ariane gets back to her seat of honor. 
She's between Balin and her dad, and she's all, like, starting to get a little flirtatious with Swan. She whispers in his ear. He doesn't respond. <laughs> and he is sweating bullets at this Dornish food. Like, he's like, oh, God, I'm going to die. Someone get me some milk. And the spun sugar skulls get served. And like Eliana said, he's, like, kind of on edge. He's all like, am I being mocked? Is this a jape? And Ariane's all... No, no, Princess of Dorn Charisma, it's fine, touching his hand, saying it's the cook's joke. And this is where Ario does think. This one is not so easily seduced as was his sworn brother. Sir Aries was a boy, despite his years. This one is a man and wary. Ario remembers that when the bearded priests had drilled him on Westerosi culture and language, it was way different from when he actually landed in Dorne, where they spoke too fast, and their wine's too sour, and their women are too lewd. There's an element of how this is written, where I think that this is actually portrayed as a memory to Ario of when he first arrived in Dorne, especially with that emphasis on was. Because he also thinks that now, he could eat any food that a Dornishman could. He's like, whatever! I can take the spice level. This is normal now. And I think it speaks to how Ario has very much assimilated in Dornish culture. Like, he might note how people are dressed, but he doesn't really judge whether he thinks, like, and he might be like, yeah, I guess it's lewd, but he doesn't, like, judge it, right? He's more of just like, okay, interesting, that's the outfit we're wearing today, but he doesn't, like, he's not scandalized by any of it. He, he's very much adjusted to the culture. But, you know, on, on the flip side, I, I think this is just something George hasn't really thought about. Ariane, uh, Quentin, and Tristine, right? They're all not only Dornish, they're also Norvoshi, but there's no sort of sense of that culture being ingrained in them, uh, and, and that sense of, like, their mother is from the free cities, and them learning about any of it or really thinking about it, about it at all. They just think of themselves as only Dornish, and I think that's really interesting, as someone who has immigrant parents and mm. grew up with like a lot of friends who are very multicultural. And I, I think it's just something George doesn't think about or wouldn't think about to write. No, that's a great point. He wouldn't think from that perspective at all. And it is interesting, like the, the choice for casting for Ariel Hota in the show, I actually thought worked really well. I mean, Dorn in the show, besides the whole plot part, you know? <laughs> they kind of like if they had just left the plot thing out like the costuming was gorgeous the setting was perfect right like where they filmed in spain was beautiful and i think they really could have built that world so well to that medium on tv they did i mean the, the just the costuming alone it really was gorgeous but uh it's interesting to me that norvos i mean from what we know of it it's not that different right like it's he has paler skin he comments on several times through this it's it's interesting that the free cities and that like norvos is not very well developed and i know that we're going to explore that when we do get into our free cities episode a little more but i don't know the culture is just not as loud as i expected it to be and i really hope that he expands before ending Ario's chapters yeah i mean like i understand why he might not i mean we've got only two books to wrap everything up in but it, it's just interesting that None of the Martell children think about it. They think about yeah, their maybe like, all. where's mom? But they don't think about <laughs> being Norvoshi. Yeah. And to be fair, uh, on the actual meta level that we're really speaking, if we're really going to talk about it in this manner, it's 
it's likely George just didn't have it plotted out at that point, as we know his gardening kind of state of writing. Uh, this came late in the game of yeah. Thrones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I mean, it is book five. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, <laughs> sorry, I just thought about the books and, and the timing and the number of them, literally. Uh, Again, All 13 of them? <laughs> all 13 of them. Balin's journey into Dorne had been very complicated, we learn. Uh, he was feasted at every corner, as I've mentioned. When he arrived, neither Sir Aerys nor Princess Marcella greeted him. He's likely getting a little suspicious. As we get towards midnight, Doran kind of starts interacting with Balin and is like, How familiar are you with the letter Cersei had you bring to me? Of course, Balin has A, read it a bajillion times, and B, says that he was briefed by the queen, that he may be tasked with bringing Marcella back to King's Landing to visit her brother, who misses her so. Arianne, of course, is super sad. She's like, Prince Tristane would be so heartbroken without his companion, and Balin counters, Tristane should come to the capital and befriend Tommen. Yes, of course the Iron Throne would love for Tristane to come and join their horde of hostage children that they're, they've been amassing or trying to. It's kind of insulting in a way. It's like, do you really think they're that fucking stupid? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, last time they sent people to the capital from Dorne, they died. Hey, and you know what? The last time, too. Yeah. So they're like... Third time's the charm. <laughs> like, absolutely not. We're not sending more children. Um, but yeah, I, I do like this detail of that Balin Swan's retinue, right, was delayed on their way down. It, it feels like a, they, it feels like Dorne sort of imposed on Balin Swan's party what was taking Renly so long to get to in his party as they were making their way during, um, during the war. They were feasting everywhere and slopping. And also it took Robert right a long time to get to the north. But they were like, we can do that strategically. And they did that to Balin Swan. And they're like, we're going to buy ourselves more time to cover up Arian's mistakes. <laughs> it, it was, it, yeah. honestly, I think it was a smart, it, it was a smart, quick strategy on the part of Doran. Yeah, and it's a really flimsy plan, as we're about to learn. It's totally put forward by Cersei, right, as, like, this skinny plan. She thinks she can just, like, get rid of Dorne really easily as a problem. And it's funny to me, because uh, Dorne is like, oh, Tristane should see the world. You're right, Balin, and Balin's sweating. He's not even <laughs> eating. Like, Ario notices he didn't even have the snake stew, Ario thinks, and the hall is super cooled off. And there's so many hints of these things that get revealed when we get to this chapter's end. And I think it's really well written. Uh, it's sharp. The themes connect to the happenings in these other plots in Dorne, where last episode we talked, and the episode before that with Ares, we kind of talked about how Feast was a little packed full and rushed, right? Like, it was like, oh, I'm trying to world build all of a sudden for this huge plot I want to have happen. A Dance with Dragons pulls it off. This is a very sharp chapter, has you on the edge, because Doran then moves on, and it's obvious he's playing with his food. He moves on to the rest of the letter, and he's like, ah, uh, you know, Doran, we do need to come be on the council, but he's not sure if he's actually up for the trip. He's like, I can't really do all that. My joints, we might have to travel by sea. And immediately Balin's like, oh, by sea? What? What do you, there's pirates in the stepstones and there's storms in the fall. So I don't think we can actually travel by sea. That ruins all the plans, Queen Sir. I mean, what? <laughs> Balin is like, I don't do politics. Uh, in Balin's defense, though, they're not necessarily untrue, especially because we do know there's like the Corsair King, right? Apparently making 
doing whatever hijinks he's doing on the Stepstones and how we know that their involvement can have big political ramifications from uh, the dance, the other dance, not this book, the Dance of the Dragon Civil War. <laughs> anyway, Doran agrees. He's like, yes, of course, pirates, storms, <laughs> perhaps Balin, maybe you should just return the way you came then. And he says that they can talk more about it in the morrow when they visit the princess in the water gardens. Balin says he is eager to see Marcella and to visit the water gardens as well. And Doran gives him the history of SeaWorld. Of SeaWorld? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, Aliana? <laughs> Even I'm like, what the fuck? He gives them the history of the water gardens. I don't know. I was like, how can I make the water gardens sound more like a water park? Oh, God. <sighs> yes. And you may know it, but we will reiterate it now. Doran says, One of my ancestors had them built to please his Targaryen bride and free her from the dust and heat of Sunspear. Daenerys was her name. She was sister to King Darren the Good, and it was her marriage that made Doran part of the Seven Kingdoms. The whole realm knew that the girl loved Darren's bastard brother, Damon Blackfire, and was loved by him in turn. But the king was wise enough to see the good of thousands must come before the desires of two, even if those two were dear to him. It was Daenerys who filled the gardens with laughing children, her own children at the start, but later the sons and daughters of lords and landed knights were brought in to be companions to the boys and girls of princely blood. And one summer's day, when it was scorching hot, she took pity on the children of her grooms and cooks and serving men and invited them to use the pools and fountains too, a tradition that has endured till this day. Ah, even glossing past some of the obvious kind of Daenerys talk, like he's very obviously being like, ah, here's a story about Daenerys, which is great because by the end of the chapter, we kind of see his plans a little fuller right like he is banking on an Aegon he is also kind of banking on a Daenerys but not as much right not as much he's more worried about what is at hand and I think this whole passage especially later with the retelling and what he tells the snakes and Ariane and Ario, this will be a nice mirror for the winds of winter specifically King Darren's court we hear a lot about how it grew increasingly Dornish as time mm. went on Darren II's heir looks Dornish. Rumors float around court that he's illegitimate. And of course, Aegon IV gives Daemon Blackfire uh, over Darren, and that causes mistrust and suspicion. These things, the rumors of illegitimate heirs, the sudden change from Dornish enemies to Dornish allies, are what led to a Blackfire rebellion and uprising. And this is pretty much what we're going into in the next book, right? Illegitimate heirs, Dornish enemies turned into Dornish allies, the Blackfire Rebellion is nigh, my friend. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of other mirrors, right, there's a line, there's that line there about Darren having married Daenerys to Marin Martell, who I'm not sure if he's named in this chapter, or if he's like, gets named later on. Um, and the need to put aside love uh, for marriages, for peace. I think it's very much kind of like what we're seeing in Danny's chapters, kind of right now in dance or around this time as she's navigating like whether to marry his dar, what she's got to do about Quentin's like surprise marriage proposal, and then also <laughs> her love for Dario and, mm. and and what's the right call right for the good of thousands. Binding a realm together. I mean, Daenerys has already tried to do that. Yeah, mm. she's trying to she's trying to do that for the peace and marine. 
Well, the good news is she does not have to marry if she just comes over on her big ol' flying winged babies. I'm just saying. Like, if you stood on that dragon and said to someone, like, this is my castle now, I would say yes. I would not make you marry me. I'd make you marry me, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> good for her. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a discussion for different chapters. Doran must retire now, though. He requests that Obara wheel him out, and the other snakes join and bid their uncle goodnight. Immediately, Obara hounds him with accusations that he cannot mean to send Tristan and Rosella, that he's giving away their leverage, and Doran tells her, you're being foolish if you hold your tongue till the place where no one can hear us. Maybe I'll <laughs> tell you some things. I will say, at least Obara does slow down when Doran, like, chastises her. He's like, for the love you bear me, please slow down. It it, it hurts so much. <laughs> <laughs> and you know her with her short, fast, angry strides, as we know. She was like, get this bitch to the solar. Yeah, and then she's and like, I okay, fine. Answers. Yeah, she slows down, and I appreciate that, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, my bad. So Tyene and Obara both kind of mock him. They're like, you're not going to do anything. And Ariane actually sticks up for him. They're like, she says, you do him wrong. Once the doors of the solar have been closed, Dorian is wheeled to face them. His swollen purple joints are on display, and Ariane moves to help her dad. Maester Kaliot offers him milk of the poppy, but he's like, I would need a handle to deal with this pain. Big mood. And he sends the maester off for the evening. Obara takes the skull from Kaliot as he exits, and Nim and Obara start to argue if this is actually the mountain. Interesting, interesting. Um... The man was eight feet tall. There is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? Freedom? Mm. I think that's a interesting quote, right? It's something we should examine. Because, so, thanks to the A Dance of Dragons and, of course, the Winds of Winter sample chapters... We actually know that Cersei and Marjorie survived their trials. Our good friend Brendan B. Fish did a write-up over at Reddit that will link about this uh, that kind of puts the chronology in order, but a few of the things are in the epilogue of A Dance with Dragons, of course. Mace says that he means to descend on Storm's End after the trial is over. And then, of course, Kevin says that two queens are going to be tried for high treason, and that his niece has elected trial by battle, and Sir Robert Strong will champion her. Later in the epilogue, we get the line, Let the castle pass from one pretender to another. Why should that trouble us? I shall recapture it after my daughter's innocence is proved. From Mace. So fast forward, no big spoilers, but in The Winds of Winter, Ariane 2, we get this line. Or two lines, I should say. There's an army descending on Storm's End from King's Landing. You'll want to be safe inside the walls before the battle. So we can assume that since an army is descending on Storm's End, Marjorie was proven innocent at a trial. And Cersei's fate is also hinted at in some Winds of Winter sample chapters in Mercy, where uh, we're told that how long do you think we'll be here? Longer than you'd like, the old man replied. If he goes back without gold, the queen will have Sir Harris Swift's head. This supposes Cersei is now in charge in King's Landing again, and we kind of know she doesn't have anyone standing in front of her, right? 
She's ended pretty much any of the people who know or have big evidence that Robert Strong is Gregor, except for the Tyrells, and I have a sneaking suspicion getting rid of the Tyrells in the first half of the book might be pretty easy. When the Tyrells are out of the picture, it's... God, that's gonna be a horror show for the snakes if they learn Gregor's alive or if he's still alive, and Cersei has to win her trial. The High Sparrow wants her to. Any chance he has at reinstating the faith and getting power comes from her negligence, and Tommen is a puppet king. This is precisely where Tyene's going to come into the plot in the Winds of Winter for those chapters, and we will, of course, cover that in a bit. Brynn B. Fish also advocates Lancel will be the faith's champion, and that he'll die at Cersei's hand, which has been pushed since A Clash of Kings, which, you know, at the trial, and I agree with that. Especially with Kevin's recent death at the end of A Dance of Dragons, I think Lancel's going to be very incensed to fight for the faith for his father against Cersei. Yeah, I think there's an aspect of that, and also uh, maybe we can even see a little bit of Lancel and Ari's Oakheart mm. uh, parallels, you know, like maybe seeing it as a way to restore his honor, but also not quite wanting to live. But maybe he'll be like, my god will protect me, and it's going to be like, I don't know, dude, Ari's Oakheart wanted to die. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's a lot, all of that going on right now, though. Tyene's reiterating her confidence in Oberyn's poison, saying, like, I know what poison he used. It was very lethal, so the mountain surely <laughs> must be dead. I mean, it's it, it's true and not true, you know? Obara calls mm-hmm. this a start. That's a start. And Ilaria is appalled. A start? said Ilaria Sand, incredulous. Gods forbid! I would it were a finish. Tywin Lannister is dead, Sora Robert Baratheon, Amory Lorch, and now Gregor Clegane, all those who had a hand in murdering Elia and her children. Even Joffrey, who was not yet born when Elia died. I saw the boy perish with mine own eyes, clawing at his throat as he tried to draw a breath. Who else is there to kill? Do Marcella and Tommen need to die so the Shades of Rhaenys and Aegon can be at rest? Where does it end? The Sand Snakes say, well, we want vengeance. And that it ends when Casterly Rock is cracked open with the ruin of Tywin and his children and works. I mean, like, she's established. Tywin's dead, alright? Like, what What do they want? Anyways, Aloria once more speaks and asks similar questions. Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him? I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Elia is 14, almost a woman. She's going to die too. Uh, Obella is 12 on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you as Dorea and Loreza worship them. If you should die, must El and Obella seek vengeance for you and Dorea and Lori for them? Is that how it goes? Round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? Ilaria Sand laid her hand on the mountain's head. I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me? To give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh? Write me songs? Care for me when I am old and sick? <laughs> what a killer speech, no pun intended. Yeah. I mean, it's true, right? Uh, it's not one-to-one at all. I think we've talked about this speech before, actually, in different parts of A Song of Ice and Fire, but... There are parts of JFK's commencement at American University from 1963 that feel really compelling to this status in Westeros. Ilaria is kind of one of the few who understand that if you start a war, 
you're going to rip apart the nation of Dorne, which, as we've seen already from this dinner, Dorne is divided. We had people that refused to drink, people that drank because it was politically what they should do at the time. Uh, whether they're able to instill someone on the throne that would value them, their people, and the policies that they need to further survive and to give resources evenly distributed across all of the nations, even if that's what the war costs, I mean, the price is very high. Elaria doesn't know all the pieces, as we know. Doran has set himself in with a dragon or two. The dragon's false. He'll likely feed onto the idea of it being real because of his sister's child. But in JFK's commencement speech, he talks about war and about peace. Um, it wasn't 100%, in my opinion, all genuine, because as we know, politicians gonna politician, but... Let us examine our attitude toward peace itself. Too many of us think it's impossible. Too many think it unreal. But that's a dangerous defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion war is inevitable. Mankind is doomed. We are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. I'm not referring to the absolute, infinite concept of peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and credulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution, but on gradual evolution in human institutions." on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interest of all concerned. And then later he goes on to say, peace is a process, a way of solving problems. The Sand Snakes do not intend to problem-solve these man-made problems the way that Ilaria or JFK proposed. Truly, they shouldn't have to. It's not their job. It's not the war they started, as Ilaria has obviously stated. But there still has to be a world to live in after they win their vengeance, right? The Reach is about to be blown to pieces by the Ironborn and torn apart. God knows what's going to happen with the dragons showing up. War in the east, starvation up and down the coast, others in the north. Genuine peace has to come from somewhere. Elaria might not have all of the information and all of the cards, like Dorne is holding close to his chest, but her message here still stands. Yeah, the vengeance that they seek is not justice right what they want is not just vengeance they want to they want more than that like i mean elari is like all these people are dead all right like these are the people who wronged us and also she's like i was there when oberon died right like it, it was in front of me and also she's like as doran doran also said he's like i mean it was a trial by combat Alright, like, he signed a waiver, and any deaths, right, are not, like, the fault of others, unfortunately, right? And, I mean, if Aegon's, if they assume, if they think that this is, in fact, Aegon, Elia's child, that's one person whose vengeance then they shouldn't be seeking vengeance for? If you yeah. think about it? So, anyway... The Sand Snakes, though, I mean, they make a point. They're like, we don't plan on forgetting these wrongs. Obara correctly assesses that Westeros is bleeding, and they're like, that means our time for vengeance. Our revenge is right now. Stannis is at the wall. Ironbor Ironborn are in the reach. And Cersei and Marjorie are fighting over Tommen. 
Yeah, Doran is like straight up. He's like, okay, this conversation is getting edgy. And he's like, Alaria, time for bed. Go be with your girls. No harm's going to come to them. So she leaves and Nymeria says that, oh, while she means well, she never knew our father's wishes like we did. And she was literally there, but. Yeah, but okay. She saw him die, but okay. Whatever you say, girls. And she's the one left now, what, to raise four kids on her own. Um, Yep. Anyway, again, this is a Ario's POV, and I love the way that he assesses Alaria in this chapter, because it's a side that I think we never got to see much of Alaria before, since a lot of our perceptions of her were through the lens of people from the Westerlands, or the Crownlands, or the North, and they were just like, Alaria, she's there with Oberyn, right? They didn't really talk to her much. And Ario thinks of her as, like, even weeping, she has a strength in her, and also later on thinks that she's a good woman and he's sad to see her go and I think that through this we see that Ario is quite wise because despite his strength and martial prowess Ario often hopes he's like I really hope that I don't have to fight this person and that it won't come to blows he wants to avoid violence where he can and we haven't quite seen it because we haven't seen Dorn uh, before this moment, these moments in the story, but Ario does have many scars. Uh, we, we get that from his POV in The Captain of Guards, from battles and fights that he's been in before. And we don't know what those are from, but I think it, it's meant to attest to his skill and experience. And experience is, of course, highlighted very much as, as a key to fighting and, and winning those fights in this story. But and I understand that I am projecting a lot of ideas and thoughts onto Ario here because, I mean, the story does give us very little of him. So we're trying to, like, understand what's Ario like, right? But I do think it could be read as, you know, on one hand, Ario admires Elia's protectiveness of her children, considering that Ario's own parents didn't do that for him. She recognizes the cost and the price that what that bloodshed means, considering that I think because of Ario's parents selling him, he was forced into many fights in order to serve, obey, and he was lowborn, paying the price for highborn vengeance, likely much of the time, or highborn crimes, and Elaria doesn't want that for her children, and it also shows us that Ario values more than just fighting as a measurement for strength, right? Like, we keep seeing him sizing up other fighters, being like, yeah, I, I think that person's strong, they're a formidable fight or whatever, but whereas Oberyn thought that tears are what made Obara's mother weak, whereas Cersei refuses to let people see her cry because she's afraid that people will think that's weak, and whereas characters like Jaime equate their skill in fighting to their masculinity and therefore strength, Ario is saying here that it's actually Ilaria's compassion and her tears that make her strong by his judgment. And I, I, I like that Ario allows himself to have these positive judgments of people. But there's also an aspect where, for those he's sworn to protect, he's kind of worried about questioning them too much, right? Where he's like, Doran, is this, are you sure this is what you want? Because then it would have to mean then questioning himself. And it seems like Ario does have a moral compass. There's a line that he says to Arianne during her imprisonment, you know, she keeps having to be like, I didn't mean for Ario to die. I didn't mean for all these things to happen or for for Marcella to be injured. And Ario says, what you meant does not matter, little princess only what you did. His countenance was stony. I am sorry, it is for my prince to command, for Hota to obey. And I, I think that, you know, regardless of him just obeying, like, that idea that the consequences of your actions, regardless of your intent, 
very much matter, and I and I, that seems in line to an extent with what Alaria is saying. Yeah, and that line actually really reminds me of last chapter with that uh, memory that he has of when Doran said, "Words are like arrows, Ariane." You know, yes. you can't just call him back after you say it. Uh, and it's like Arya was trying to teach her that lesson as well. Like, look, I can't fix your issues, Ariane. I have to serve, obey, and protect. That is what I've been told to do. Yes, absolutely. Doran corrects Nymeria, who was, of course, as I said, uh, saying Ilaria is out of touch with their cause and Doran says, Alaria knew Oberyn better than any of you would understand, but she also doesn't know everything and doesn't know of the war that's already begun. Obara casts the blame to their sweet Arianne for that, as if, you know, Doran hasn't been chilling with the Golden Company in letters. Uh, <laughs> and Doran is angry about that. He, like, sticks up for Arianne. He's like, nope, nope, Arianne did that for you, Obara, as much as she did it for herself. Nobara says, okay, but when Balin finds out about Marcella and about Arya's Oakheart, he's going to flip out. And Ariane grasps Ariel Hota's arm, which I think is a really interesting move here, saying, no, that was Gerald Dane's doing. That was not our fault. Actually, that's interesting because I almost remember Ariel Hota killing Arya's Oakheart. Were you there for that? Yeah, uh, she's doing something very interesting here with that intrigue of, and we've seen that, I think other people do that right in the story, but it's fun to see Arya and doing it and being like, no, this is what happened. Even if it's, you know, it's a, it's just a lie, even it's kindly meant, Eliana, you know, a kindly meant lie from a princess who was in the tower. She's getting their stories straight. Yeah, get your stories straight for sure. And of course, none of this will matter she says, as long as Marcella sings this song. The snakes go back and forth saying, oh, we're probably going to have to kill this guy. And of course, like I said, Tyene's like, oh no, what about all his squires? It would be so messy if we had to kill him. <laughs> Although, like, you know, she's sitting there just thinking about poisoning them all. And Doran totally face palms. He's like, all right, enough murder, ladies. I should leave you locked in your cells, but I am going to take you to the water garden so you can learn a politic. And Obara is kind of negative to this. And Doran's like, listen, there was a part of the story in the water gardens that I left out with Balin Swan. As the children splashed in the pools, Daenerys watched from amongst the orange trees, and the realization came to her. She could not tell the highborn from the low. Naked, they were only children. There is your realm, she told her son and heir. Remember them in everything you do. My own mother said those same words to me when I was old enough to leave the pools. It is an easy thing for a prince to call the spears. But in the end, the children pay the price. For their sake, the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. Yes, and he goes on to explain further how this relates to the relationship between Oberyn and himself. Because Oberyn was the viper. He was deadly and dangerous. No man tread on him. <laughs> no man dare tread on him, he says, which I'm like imagining Oberyn with his big yellow flag and it's like a snake it just says no tread on me please uh, uh yeah George actually probably got that from there yep Doran goes on to say I was the grass pleasant complacent sweet smelling swaying who fears to walk on the grass but it's the grass that hides the viper 
and shelters him till he strikes. He tells them that Oberyn and Doran work together very closely, more than they would know, but now Oberyn is gone, and he needs to trust his daughters in his place. This is very similar to the idea of the sword and shield that we talk about with, like, Arya and Sansa, for example. Doran reveals in this chapter he isn't useless just because he's not physically capable of brandishing a sword or a giant spear at a, at a giant in battle. Uh, and I do love the snake in the grass idiom, right? Like, exploring its antiquity. There's two origins we can really initially look at, but there's a handful we'll talk about. Ultimately, it's probably from Virgil. Uh, there's a translation from Virgil. You boys that pick flowers and strawberries near the ground, run away from here. A cold snake hides in the grass. This phrase then went on to kind of get changed of French origin. Uh, there's a few ways to look at it. There's pad in the straw, pad meaning toad. And John Pelsgrave first records it. There is a pad in the straw, Ilia de Lunyan. Though they never so fair a face, yet there is a pad in the straw. So this is has an obsolete French phrase that, Eliana, I know you, Queen of the Onion, Queen of the Layers, might appreciate. That Ilia de Lunyon means literally there is some onion, meaning there are obscure motives, suspicious events, stinky motives. That's what that means. There is some onion. I think we talked about it a little bit last week, and I love what you were discussing with Joe Magician earlier off uh, off the cuff there with the whole, you know, the 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 stuff with the oranges. I feel like, look, we we didn't touch the oranges, no pun intended, back with Ariana Quentin, right? But here we are, ready to go on in on these blood oranges. And I think one of the easy translations is biblical here as we discussed last week with the snake in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, which it's wholly represented. While Doran was the grass, now he's playing both roles, right? He's becoming the serpent on his own. He's revealing he is a little treacherous. And also that he's choosing the oranges. He's choosing to follow temptation, specifically this temptation of vengeance. Uh, he's cautious about it, but he's still sending them off. And the rotten fruit in Dorne's own Garden of Eden is strong enough imagery for this. The time for revenge, as we've said, is long past, and the Dornish faction thinks they'll eat this vengeful fruit and gain their own immortality. But is the gain of immortality really within reach? No, as each rotten fruit plops to the ground, we're told immortality is not in reach for these characters. Yeah, and it's not in the reach for them either. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Ah, I can't even fire you at this point, but I'm gonna anyway. But yes, absolutely. I, I, they keep thinking the time is ripe, and it, no, it's overripe. And I, I mean, it, it comes back to you, as you reminded us, Doran kept saying, like, you can't take back, words are like arrows, right? And here he's saying, it is an easy thing for a prince to call spears, but in the end, children pay the price. And he's he's giving in, he's calling the spears now finally uh, he's been wrestling right am i willing to pay that price for years and finally he's like here it is here's my chance it's like you're gonna blow it after they pledge himself themselves after the sand snakes pledge themselves to doran he reveals that evil queen cersei has plans <laughs> that he has learned from the ears that he has placed all about King's Landing. Tristane, he says, is not meant to reach King's Landing. I, I just 
we shouldn't send him anyway. Balin's party would be attacked by outlaws, and Tristane is supposed to die, and the outlaws are going to scream, Half man! Half man! Doran was invited to court, but only as a far, so that he could see with his own eyes that Cersei was not to blame, and Balin would be the only one to see the imp, maybe. He'd think he thought he'd see him. <laughs> Though, interestingly, it's interesting that they'd have Balin do it, because Balin was one of the few at Tyrion's trial... Who said, I don't know, I didn't actually see him put poison in the cup. Why would you say that? And <laughs> they, they twisted Balin's words around to try and incriminate uh, Tyrion. So it, it, it's interesting that they chose him. But anyway, hence the sweating at dinner from Balin, because he's used to like being pretty honest. And now they're like, Balin, why don't you tell a lot of lies for us? Especially when Doran suggested they take the ship. And of course, Doran asked him the question, because they're like... Let's see him sweat. Let's do it. I kind of love it. I did kind of love that, that he asked the question to see him sweat. Because, again, it's such good setup. You start that, you see the sweat, and then you get right here and Doran's like, Listen, bitches, I know everything. That's why my joints are so big. They're full of secrets. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Sand Snakes are like, Wow, secrets? They're in shock at all of this. And they're calling Cersei a monster, saying that they couldn't believe that the Kingsguard, who are sworn to serve, obey, and protect, would do this. Yeah, them. Huh. Like the Eric Andre meme. The half man thing, like, this, this is a very elaborate plan. This is a very sorcery plan. <laughs> I can't believe that the Kingsguard would do this. They would break their vows? Commit crimes? No. Doran interrupts this rightful rage, which, of course, immediately led to violent scheming, right? Like, they're like, the Kingsguard did this, we should kill them all! Uh, and he's like, no, no, we're not going to break guest right. We're going to take him to the water gardens. And, of course, you know, you're waiting for Obar to be like, and then drown him. Uh, no, we're going to take him to the water gardens, have him hear Marcella's tale, and then Marcella will ask her knight Balin Swan to hunt down the Dark Star for her. And, of course... Balin Swan will not refuse. Obara will lead Balin to High Hermitage, deal with Darkstar, and Nymeria will take the seat on King's Landing Council, returning Marcella with her. Tyene, of course, is to join the new High Sparrow, as her mother was a Septa, and Tyene is easy, easily able to emulate the purity that is needed in white robes. He sends them off, Ariane giving them her cousinly love and blessing, and Hota, Ariane, and Doran remain in the solar together. It's difficult because we hate the mountain. We hate Amory Lorch. We hate Tywin. We love Cersei, but also, yes, we hate her, but also we love her. These are not great people, right? They're not good people. They're bad people. But the idea of sending the Sand Snakes, who have their own personal vendettas and personal motivations, while, yes, they are not very uh, not very etched out over the two books, but they are etched out enough in this chapter that I'd say they have their own plans. They're being sent out with resources to deal with these people. And it kind of seems like a ill-thought-out decision. Like, Obara has a huge personal vendetta on Old Town because her dad smacked her sex worker mother in front of her and made her choose the spear over her. She wants to rip Old Town to shreds in the guise of acquiring resources. Nymeria and Tyene want to see the Lannisters, including the kids, burn, die, die of poison, clutching their throats because of what has happened to their family. 
Tying in this very chapter, like we've said, acts so innocent while implying maybe we should kill all the squires. Uh, her eyes are all sparkling tee-hee while she's like, oh, so messy, so much blood, oh no. <laughs> you know, like, okay, Tyene, back off. Doran has to see some of this coming. Uh, he can't be, maybe he's blinded by time passing, by the regrets of not making choices faster soon enough, by his sister and brother's memory, but... I do feel like this mission gets overlooked by many. I do often hear people say, I don't really remember the Doran chapters. I don't remember that. But this chapter is so significant for at least three to four chapters, POV chapters, at least, of the next book. Um, Cersei's POV is going to have so much of this in The Winds of Winter. We're going to see Tyene in the background of her chapters because she's going to heavily be involved with the Faith, I'm sure, in the beginning of the story. Tyene will be peeking in, wearing white, looking pure, maybe at the Sparrow's side. We'll maybe see her in Arianne's point of view and John Connington's point of view at Council's. Nymeria will be at Cersei's side, whispering in her ear, poisoning her thoughts even further as she spirals downward, if not, as I've mentioned, maybe seducing her. We don't know. Obara seems like the true wild card, but from her actions in this chapter, not so much. Obara's probably not going to follow a diplomatic plan, is kind of how I feel after reading all this. Yeah, definitely. And she's going to be like, who the fuck are these people? These are not Doran Martell. <laughs> I, I asked for one person to come. One week Dornish, goddammit. I asked for one person, and my daughter and his son... Who the hell are these people? Oh, these bastards. Well, actually, I guess only two of them. Whatever. Yeah. Anyways, these are the two wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> but I also am like, I don't know, seriously, why do we keep asking? I understand there, there's an open door in your seat, but like, we've got to stop asking Dorid Martel to try and make this very long trek, okay? He is in pain. I just wanted to say that. Um... But yeah, we're going to see, as you said, like, and we're always emphasizing that the Dornish plot is so important to the Winds of Winter. Uh, Arian's telling her father, well, what if we did send three of us to King's Landing? I can still go. And Doran's like, no, we have to keep you safe as my heir. And besides, I have another task for you. And she's like, oh, have you heard any further tidings? And he smiles his secret smile towards her. This feels telling, you know, like, we should have realized it's all going to go south or north, I guess, <laughs> on first read, because now Arianne and her father are no longer at odds. They are joined forces. They are drinking their strong wine, dumb bitch juice together. They're like, we're fine. We're plotting. It's great. It's all going to go great. It's going great. Oh, God. Yeah, they're bonding. They're like, we're going to bond over scheming together. And, you know, you it really sinks in, right? The impact that having her father's approval and love has had on Arianne. Truly transformative and remarkable. She's like, even defending him against the Sand Snakes. And she's like, Sand Snakes are the coolest ever. I wish I was one of them. But I, I think part of it is like, she feels that she has years of atonement, maybe. And I think that Doran probably feels the same. And, and like I said earlier, right? Like... It would all be actually a very beautiful healing process between father and daughter if it weren't for the part where they're all doomed, but yeah, it's kind of heartwarming. It is sweet, but sad. Yeah, like, you know, Ariane lived her whole life with this cloud over her head that she wasn't good enough and that her dad favored her younger brother and that she was a disappointment and she was ashamed and 
didn't understand what she did wrong, and now it turns out, no. Uh, no, he thought pretty not highly it. of her in a lot of ways. You know, he's like, I was going to make you queen, but, you know, things have gone awry. So uh, wait, you're saying I shouldn't have gotten that Kingsguard killed, Dad? <laughs> so Doran has heard from Lise. This is where things get interesting for the reader, maybe not so much for Ariane, uh, but for the reader. He says he's heard from Lise where a great fleet with elephants and an army is taking on water. Ariane is disappointed that it's elephants and not dragons, which I think is so interesting. Such a, uh, like, a not seeing the big picture thing, right? Like, Doran's like, no, Ariane, I'm trying to tell you something. And Ariane's like, but I want dragons, Dad. And it's just what Damon Sand later tells her when they're playing Savas. Like, don't, don't keep going for your dragon, Ariane. You have other things to play on the field. We get this line. Elephants. Easy enough to hide a young dragon in a big cog's hold, though. Daenerys is most vulnerable at sea. If I were her, I'd keep to myself and make my intentions hidden as long as I could, so I might take King's Landing unawares. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting ideas about strategy here. That that being vulnerable at sea for Daenerys. I noticed this, this line through, and so now I'm like, oh, so we're losing a dragon. I mean, we were always going to lose a dragon. I just didn't. You don't know that? Well, we have to. She, it, It's all too OP. If no, we don't. that's true. She is like the Omega with her dragons. We gotta... I mean, that's... Sorry, Viserion, you dead bitch. <laughs> so, Ariane asks if Quentin is going to be with them, these soldiers that he's talking about, and Doran's like, I don't know, but when the army lands, we'll find out if they're coming to Westeros. He hopes Quentin will be bringing Daenerys up the green blood, but decides, you know what, this is enough plotting for the evening. He asks for a kiss goodnight and says, look, we depart at first light, which I love that Ario is in the background and he's thinking, and he's like, so midday. We're leaving midday. Mood. <laughs> it is. I know that feeling. Like, okay. So I love, again, that Ariane is so obsessed with the dragon in this. She's like, dragons, dragons, dragons. Is it dragon, Dad? Is it dragon? And he's like, no, Ariane, it's elephants. And I'm like, Ariane, too bad you don't have any books or didn't have two to three weeks of time where you could read books where they were all in front of you. Maybe you would have figured out that your dad's talking about the Golden Company. Yeah. But I mean, she's gonna soon. Gonna figure it all out <laughs> soon. Uh Sometimes you just gotta learn stuff for yourself, you know? You can't just let your parents tell you stuff. You just gotta learn stuff on your own. Make your own mistakes, you know? Like, who needs King's Landing? Burn it down. Make your own mistakes. Yeah, and you know what? Also, same for Doran. He's gonna make his own mistakes, too. Uh, like, all of them. All of them. Yeah. He's already made some in his marriage, and that was actually quite sad. Um, so we end the chapter with later, when Arianne had gone... He put down his long axe and lifted Prince Doran into his bed. Until the mountain crushed my brother's skull, no Dornishman had died in this war of the five kings, the prince murmured softly as Hota pulled a blanket over him. Tell me, Captain, is that my shame or my glory? That is not for me to say, my prince. Serve, protect, obey. Simple vows for simple men. That was all he knew. Hmm. Man, sad. That's like such a fucking sad line. And something that really connected during this, shame and glory are 
technically like super connected to the Lannisters, not just Jamie's honor and glory, which is horses, but uh, this plot, as we know, is directly connected to the Lannister plot. And we get a couple different lines. It reminds me of Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons and in A Storm of Swords, of course, with the song that Simeon Silvertongue wrote about him. For she was his secret treasure. She was his shame and his bliss. Uh, And a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. And shame and glory is actually directly used in Jamie 5 in the bathhouse at Harrenhal. When Jamie opened his eyes, he found himself staring at the stump of his hand, the hand that made me Kingslayer. The goat had robbed him of his glory and shame both at once. Both of those are actually quite tied to the idea of like hands and golden hands, but I, I think it speaks to, as we've been saying, like the way that the Martells might be tempted into committing some of the same sins that the Lannisters have been doing for a while, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's very interesting, that connection. Because it seems to be, you know, as Jamie and Tyrion, well, Tyrion's a mess, but as Jamie becomes more humanized, right, and these... I mean, a lot of people look at the Sand Snakes as kind of characters, right? Like, they're very caricatures. They're very just like, I've got a whip and I'm angry and then I've got this. And if you aren't reading these chapters in full depth, you might continue thinking that. And the Sand Snakes, how people think of them, they think of the Lannisters, right? Huh. As that. Uh, it's the Golden Twins. It's Jamie and Cersei are the Golden Twins and they're Spawn. They're little cubs. They're not actually usually named they are just these blank faces that they are going to get revenge against. So as Jamie is gaining humanity, and as Tyrion hopefully will maybe find his way back to humanity again, which, of course, coincidentally, Tyrion's the reason that they're going to have this alliance with Aegon, right? Like, he's pushed mm, him that way. Uh, as Tyrion's the reason they even have a chance to get this vengeance, so Tyrion's just opening fire on his family. But as these two characters are gaining humanity... The Sand Snakes are continually stripping it from them in order to keep that idea of vengeance against them. And I find that really interesting because in the end, all these characters have been done so wrong. Like, imagine if they just went to a good group therapy session. Dunno. Yeah, and that's what Ilaria is trying to push. She's like, what if we went to a good group therapy session? I I think it's interesting that Doran asks, you know, coming back to this idea of shame and glory. Doran asks, is it my shame or my glory? He's asking Ario to help him choose which one, and Ario has a quite a different relationship, right, with Doran than some other, like maybe a Kingsguard or, mm-hmm. or or Lord Commander might have. But even then, there's still that power differential where the Lord Commander can't question truly what uh, their ruler says. But that Doran thinks it's one or the other, whereas in both of these lines from the Lannisters, we see that. The thing that is the shame and bliss, or the thing that is shame and glory, it's not one or the other. It's both. It is both Doran's shame and his glory that no Dornishman had died in this War of the Five Kings. Like, it, it, it's a shame in that perhaps they weren't able to get vengeance, right? Perhaps they were not able to get the justice that they so dearly wanted, and, and that the Dornish feel that they were disempowered during this entire period but it's also his glory in that he was able to resist for so long that temptation and that he was also able to save and prevent the loss of so many lives it's both yeah it's definitely both 
I think that's important, though, because as we learn with Jamie, it's both. Same thing. I mean, it's it's not one or the other. You can't take one without the other. You're going to have both of these things, shame and glory, um, in war. You know, it's war. Yeah. And the onion can be both rotten and good, but I do cut off the part that's bad because people are not... Well, are they onions? I don't know. Shrek. Sorry. Um... Hey, there is some onion, as the French say. Mm, anyway, so I want to move from onions, from tears from onions, to tears because of sadness. Because is it a Girls Gone Canon episode if we don't get sad? And now no. I want to be sad about Ario Hota even more. Again. We've been talking a lot about him and his past and how it informs who he is and his relationship to the Martells. And last episode, we actually discussed whether Ario feels anything or any maybe like resentment that a kingdom would go to war over the death of the youngest son for Oberyn, who was the fifth son, and yet he was wanted and just so loved that all these people want want justice for him or vengeance. D- those are different. Where's he, the youngest, the eighth child in a lower class family in Norvos, was sold into servitude. Quite different from Oberyn's plight. And regarding... Ario's sexuality and temptations towards having a family or wife or anything. I, I It's interesting because we have Ario's chapters in contrast to John, right? He's the watcher. John's the watcher on the walls. And he's wrestling... John's wrestling with what he does and doesn't deserve, right? His desire earlier on in his story to never father a bastard. But also that at one point in time, he's like, well, yeah, I could... I wanted to be Lord Stark, and he feels shame about that, and he's like, I guess I could still be Lord Stark now, uh, and just leave and have a life, and, like, marry Val, uh, despite, and, and, and that's interesting, because, like, you know, despite the sort of a- abuse that he endured at Winterfell and his feelings of social ex- exclusion for being a bastard amongst the highborn family, Jon still feels like he might want those things, he might, those things might still be attainable for him. But Ario doesn't show any hints of wanting any of that. Like, yes, much of it might have to do, and much of it likely does have to do with his conditioning as part of the Holy Guard's slave squadron. But I, thinking more deeply about what that means for Ario's character, I wonder, you know, did the Holy Guard use that fact that, that, that they were sold, that these children like Ario were sold off by their own families as a way to sort of squash any desires or that they might have had for wanting a family, right? Or wanting love. Because, like, how could Ario feel like he wants a family when he can't even feel like he deserves one? Like, he he was just so unwanted by his family. They saw him as a burden and not worth caring for. And the Holy Guard, maybe, like, they told him, you know, you were unwanted. If you want to be of worth, if you want to earn a place in this world, then what you need to do is serve, protect, obey. You can have worth and be wanted if you follow these simple vows, and then maybe you can be part of a family, like the Martells, maybe. Yeah. I... And it's so sad to think that maybe, like we talked about with his sisters last episode, the sound of Noom and Nara and Yell singing, that's what he remembers. Right. Like that, when we hear about it, that is what he remembers is the bells, possibly his sisters. He remembers the good things. And I 
do think, I mean, it, contextually, yes, he feels on, as somebody with major abandonment issues from the biological father issue, may I just add, hashtag bastard culture, um, definitely he feels unwanted. I mean, your family sold you, but his family had to. Uh, they had no other way to turn to. He was a big boy who ate too much, he says, and he tries to justify it. And he thinks of these sweet memories of his sister singing and of Norvos and kind of looks on it favorably in this old light. But the bearded priests manufacture, right? I mean, this is their manufacturing warriors. He was trained to be a warrior. He was trained to be a machine. So how can you possibly even like watching this family this already super dysfunctional family right the sand snakes alone as nieces to doran they're just so dysfunctional and watching all of this they're very rude to him i would never speak to any of my uncles like that oh my god i know right i mean i have i've got a couple uncles that are assholes you know i'm white eliana so i have some asshole we don't do uncles. that in asian families god I, that's the other like i was raised not to talk back for the most part. So I don't know what happened personally with me. You know, like, I'm not sure when the switch was flipped where I started talking back. And here I am talking back to you every week. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just could never speak to my family that way. I'd get smacked upside the face. And he just never... I mean, John was born and given taken to this family where he wasn't allowed to have the love that he had displayed in front of him, right? Like, Catalan and Eddard, yes, it was strained at times, but they grew to love each other, Catalan reassures herself, I should say, and the kids grew to love each other, and even John was accepted to an extent, and this is the home that Ario has made, this is the home that he has had for himself, but there's no affection here, and it's been so long since affection or the simple song from Nara, Noom, and Yell were playing, I mean, how could he remember it? How could he know? All he knows is serve, obey, and protect. And it's extremely sad because Ario will probably die loving nothing but his prince. Yeah, he's afraid too. You know, in the, the moment, Doran is so vulnerable mm -hmm. with him emotionally to ask him. I, that's a very vulnerable question, right? And... I don't know if he truly wants an answer from Ario or not, but Ario doesn't know how to be vulnerable with Doran. And I that's a big part, right, of relationships that, that shared vulnerability. Because Ario's never been allowed to, right? He was vulnerable obviously with his family. Mm -hmm. And that was and he lost that. So it it's hard. It's really sad what goes on with Ario, and as you said, like that he might never truly be able to attain that. And he's just he he's kind of kept himself. That's his own shield, right? The the vows to not have to be vulnerable. Yeah, and again, how would he figure out how to be? You know, at this point, you can't just learn that. I mean, there's so much stuff as an a grown-up that I'm now realizing that I can't just, like, naturally learn like I would have as a child, right? Behaviors. Um, yeah. Ways to confront problems. I mean, there's so much problem-solving that day-to-day I'm just like, why didn't no one teach me this? You know? Yeah, like, why? constantly. 
why was it yeah why was this not a day-to-day feeling like why do i still not love myself no matter how many memes i post you know what i mean like i just yeah it's different than ariel's major struggles but you know what i mean (laughs) what you mean sorry i'm gonna Uh, just repeat the exact same joke i made back and forth i was louder people will hear it eliana god no i'm just kidding you edit these you can make it happen (laughs) i'm sad now eliana why did you do this to me I thought we deserve. I thought Ario Hota deserved for us to be sad for him. He does. He deserves his Balin Swan song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Am I hired? Um, Balin Swan's interesting. I feel like something. And so, okay, here's the deal, everyone. We are going to do a quick outro for Ario Hota. And by that, I mean a quick lightning round. And I want to talk about Balin Swan real quick because something I really liked was the two sides of his clasp of his cloak Mm. how one side was onyx and one was the light color i thought that was interesting of the swan and uh ariane actually says to him you know oh your swan is so beautiful i hear they come from the summer isles i've never seen one i'd love to see one and obviously it's flirty like i'm charismatic and i'm trying to get you to our side balin swan and make you feel you know vulnerable whatever and femme fatale shit but i think there's something there with the two sides. Like, Balin Swan seems like maybe the least shitty left on the King's Guard, and he's about to die. Let's be real. He will die. He oh, will be dead. Die. Maybe by the time we get to the first Doran chapter, we will just hear he's dead. I don't even know if we'll see it. You know, I think we'll just hear, oh, Balin Swan, dead. Darkstar, Obara, gone. Uh, I think that might be something we're looking forward to, like that. Darkstar and Obara team up and they just like peace out and I don't know if we'll even see it. I think there's some really awesome theories that circulate and as we get into this outro here, I want to talk about some of them. But Yeah, I, I think something something sad or bad is going to happen to like Bale and Swan for all the reasons that you said and of course, you know, he is a marcher comes from the marcher lords, right? And House Swan is sworn to House Baratheon, but as we know the Storm Lords are going a certain way with the <laughs> arrival of the Griffs. Um, and the the idea of like two swans of two different colors facing each other, it, it reminds me again, you know, of the what happened in the dance of the Dragon Civil War and families facing against one another and, and this hilarious exchange between Jamie and Balin. Where Jamie's like, Alright, well what happens if your family, right, comes into the into the room and you're told to choose between <laughs> your king and your blood what will you do and Balin's like I my lord that will never happen and Jamie's like it happened to me and Balin's like my lord on my sword on my honor on my father's name I swear uh, I shall not do as you did <laughs> and that's what Jamie wants to hear but it sounds like Balin's gonna uh, be put in a tough spot where he's gonna have to choose between the throne and his family yeah, and he already is as we get into this chapter, right? I mean, he starts the chapter and in his head, he has to keep a straight face about this fucking insane plot. Let me just reiterate, <laughs> insane that Cersei's like, here's what's going to happen, Balin. You're going to take them this way. Doran's going to see it all go down. He's going to see his son murdered and he is going to be like, huh, my son's dead. It must not be Cersei's fault because the imp was being shouted about. It's asinine. It is absolutely like, is the stupidest plan 
Balin's like, it. I never took drama class. <laughs> Balin's like, literally, I'm a jock. All of us that joined the Kingsguard are jocks, and Is we he, disconnected from like, our families. He's like, I'm not Troy Bolton. Oh my god. I okay, both act and do sports. Okay, we sorry. have to do this lightning round, yes. and then we can talk more about Balin's swan. So for our outro lightning round, we will be covering the chapters that span from right now until the end of Dance with Dragons, but only the ones that are relevant. So the first one is the spurned suitor. The frog prince arrives far too late for his kiss. The frog's afraid to come home empty-handed, though, and he plans to steal one of Daenerys's dragons. Rude. <laughs> the griffin reborn, ruminating on the failures of his past. John Connington takes his home back, presenting it for King Aegon the Sixth, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> The Dragon Tamer. O. Epilogue. A second O. But this time, from Kevin. <laughs> Lannister. Oh, Kevin Lannister. What a guy. He dead. Rip. So, back to Balin Swan, as we were just saying. <laughs> now that you have that context. You know, Balin Swan definitely... I don't know if he's going to crop up in person. Like I said, I'm not sure if it's something we will actually see firsthand. I'd imagine we'll see some stuff from Aereo, but it could be one of those things where in The Wind's Winter, we pop into Aereo Hota's first chapter and some shit has gone down. George likes to do that, right? Specifically, Ned, John, the Stark chapters especially. It's like, here's some trauma. Here's some stuff that happened a week ago. And now here's where our character is. Uh, and we did get an email from our friends Amy Blackfire and Julie Araya Flint, who have a new theory. Uh, and I say new, but it's a really cool idea. It's Darkstar and Doran are in league. Hmm. Darkstar and Doran are acting in league together. Uh, and they kind of claim that Doran and Darkstar are sword and shielding it. Darkstar told is what they think. Or... Maybe he didn't tell he was ordered. And so here are a few of the points that they think about this theory, which we will be linking below. It is over on Amy Blackfire's blog, A Song of Ice and Fire Chinese Lit, A-S-O-I-A-F, ChineseLit.wordpress.com. Basically, Darkstar arrived earlier than everyone to the green blood, and it seemed that this was a little prearranged, right? Like he didn't drink like other people were. He's like, no, no, I have lemon water, Stannis style, no salt though. And the punishments that Doran doles out to Ariane's companions, which I agree, feels completely pre-planned. It's likened a little bit to these guys in the story, like Gregor and Tywin, which for decades these two carried out atrocities that benefited the Lannisters, and like Lincor Bray and Peter Baelish, or even Ramsay and Bruce. It's a really interesting concept. I'm not sure how I completely feel about it. I don't think... Uh, it works with who Doran is. Yes, Doran did show himself to be just as treacherous with as who Oberyn is in this entire kind of story that he, hey, I, I've been the grass, but I've been hiding the snake. Like, I also am bad. I'm bad to the bone. Bad to the swollen bone. Bad to the swollen joints. Uh, <laughs> I say that as an arthritic bitch. So I think that's something to kind of juxtapose this against that 
Doran has all these speeches about how the children are important to protect and save the children, how going to war just means that more of these children will die, whether the water gardens, whether the snakes, whether anyone. Uh, and I feel like likening that he's in league with Darkstar is, can be a little weaker because I just don't think he's like murder daddy, you know? Like, I don't think that he would be okay with uh, Darkstar telling him to do stuff now. I imagine that Darkstar decided to do things, and Doran probably said, I will look the other way if you do things. I could see that. I don't know. What do you think, Eliana? Yeah, I think um, it's a really strong analysis, as you said, and, and brings in a lot of interesting ideas. And as I said, the idea of Doran and Darkstar working together opens up a lot of interesting possibilities for the Dornish plots. And... You know, there's precedence for Doran working together with someone acting as a sword or shield. But I, I just don't know, as you said, if the timing works for here, because Doran is so stresses so much that the children and their safety is important. But we're seeing I, I think we're starting to see now that Doran is making riskier moves and dabbling with the concept of paying that price because up until now that that's been the thing one of the core elements of Doran's character right like deep down that he's unwilling to hurt innocence and is trying to stay true to this creed yes. that his mother taught him that was passed down to to his mother um so on and so forth from that first Daenerys Targaryen but I think that what's interesting about this I think that it, there's a definitely a possibility for it as Doran starts giving into those temptations mm -hmm. and being like maybe yes yes and I think that's the thing right Darkstar can represent yet another one of those blood oranges another one of that that tr that fruit uh, forbidden fruit that he's willing to take a bite out of and be like maybe maybe i will right maybe i will allow some of that innocence to be lost maybe there are prices that have to be paid for the good of many and rather than thinking like that price is like just a marriage thinking maybe it will have to be some children and that could be how he ends up in league with Darkstar at some point. And I think there are a few kind of external canon things that have an influence here, right? Like, I truly believe Ariane is the one that texted Darkstar and was like, hey, you up? You know what I mean? Like, she was the one who texted Darkstar and said, get out here. And I know a lot of people might not confirm or take this as confirmed 100% canon, but the World of Ice and Fire app, if you have uh, Google Play and iOS, definitely download it. It's a canon app. It was all approved through George. Like, these were facts that were not just laid out there on the table for fun, right? Uh, a lot of people tag it as semi-canon source because it's not the books, but it it's a canon source. It was all approved. And the app confirms that... Ariane and Darkstar maybe had some carnal knowledge of each other. And as we discussed in our Ariane chapters, uh, Ariane kind of is into the whole Darkstar look. The the robber with the widow's peak that she imagines fucking definitely resembles her uncle Oberyn, but also a little bit of Darkstar and his danger. Doran, right now, this whole chapter, as we see, Seems to be him covering for Ariane, like covering her mistakes that she made yeah. up. Like, listen, yep, this is how we're going to fix it. And he and her get together and they seem to be scheming to fix things and put band-aids on them. 
Darkstar, I think, is hoping that in the mix of all of this and in all the chaos and the power vacuum that has just landed for Dorne, he's probably hoping for not only a pardon for this behavior, but also to get Starfall from its weak hold. Edric is nothing but a boy lord. I know it's not discussed often, and we did actually discuss, like you were saying, the marcher lords and how Balin Swan is a marcher lord. And I think that's so prominent in the Dornish plot, this warring between the marcher lords and Dorn, uh, for obvious reasons that don't come up often. Edric might have a little bit of an interesting parentage. The Windsor Winter family tree for the Danes. Elio Garcia confirmed that George does have a little family tree going, and I would love to learn who Edric Dane's parent actually is besides the Dane brother, the unnamed Dane brother, Arthur and Ashara's eldest brother, and Illyria's eldest brother, who doesn't get mentioned. Uh, he obviously has died by now because Edric Dane is a boy lord. And I want to know who his mother is. Is she still alive? It seems like she might be a fowler. However, Illyria Dane, who is the lady of the house, right? She is uh, not not the lady of the house in lordship. Edric, like I said, is the boy lord. She is next after Edric if he does not continue on and get an heir. But she was engaged in 294 AC to Beric Dondarrion. She was betrothed to him, likely by Edric Dane's dad. Why was she married off to a marcher lord's son? That's an interesting statement. It was to make a peace between the two areas, between the two. Obviously, this has been a horrible, this in the reach has had horrible areas of peace back and forth. But that's pretty significant in my opinion. And because of these two things, with her married off and Edric being with the Brotherhood Without Banners and on his way back and Starfall's week, I think Darkstar, as an off branch of the Danes, is really hoping to try to get Starfall from its very weak hold right now. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, if Arya's able to catch up with him at any point. I think that Arya's really going to dislike Darkstar for a number of reasons, including betraying his little princess, attacking children. Um, I, I think he's going to see Darkstar as very dangerous, right? We get a lot of sizing up of other fighters. But I think that he might be like, wow, fuck this guy, like, who thinks that he's so entitled that just because he's so good at fighting that he deserves this lordship or that he deserves this sword, right? Whereas Ario has been denied so many things. Like, I, I don't think that he'll very much like Darkstar's feelings of entitlement perhaps yeah it does not like <sighs> Ario, obara and darkstar are all probably gonna hook up and as they say and balen swan don't yeah, forget balen swan not only four's company but three's company my dear three's a crowd yeah someone's not gonna fit in that little dornish faction let alone Balin Swan. I think it'll just be interesting to see Balin Swan sweat a bit more. Like, what are we doing? This is not why I came down here. Yeah. It's not looking great. That's all. That's all I have to say. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you... Yeah, and thank you so much, Amy and Julia Rhea Flint, for this analysis for us to dig into and think more about and talk more about, because it's certainly given me a lot to think about in the future. Yeah, I don't actually like think about 
Darks read that off, and I know that there are people who do. For example, San Rixian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, we were all like San Rixian. Um, I think oh. I saw that Monero also is very into Dark Star as well. They were bonding over that somewhere. Listen, so maybe those Dark pe- Star's into them, okay? Yeah, those people think about Dark Star, so <laughs> I don't. So this and- is for you all. I'm glad that we had a moment to think about him. Yes, thank you very much to Julia and Amy for reaching out with this and for bringing up a lot of those great um, parallels and digging into those characters. You know, if you have something that you would like to tell us, you can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon at on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or you can also shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, absolutely. Shoot us some ideas or theories to Chloe and Eliana. If you do not already subscribe to us on the many platforms you can find us on, like Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, where we're hosted, uh, Stitcher, Acast, you name it, make sure you get over there and do it. And of course, we do have a Patreon, and for patrons $5 and up, you get more episodes. This month, it's going to be a La Belle Sauvage episode, but next month, it'll be an Aswath episode. And last month, if you would like last month's episode, we covered Under the Regents, a bit of the reign of Aegon III in the aftermath of the dance. Yes, and we also have been doing a Free Cities series. I'm really excited to keep going. I hope we can do some good Norvos talk in the future, so stay tuned for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. I'm going to miss Ariel, Eliana. I actually really will. I thought this was really fun. Well, tune in next month for Asha Greyjoy. I am excited for Asha. Yeah, Ah! that's true. Who's after Asha? No one knows. No one knows. We'll talk to you guys later. Tune in for Forgotten Characters and T-Wow next week.